some things and acknowledge some things that uh, kind of the elephant in the room that uh, we live in a divided country and that over the last two weeks our country has been even divided more than ever before and one of the problems is that one of the leaders uh, is uh, underhanded and arrogant and that's why I think it's time we finally take Tom Brady down you know let's do it that's all I'm saying it's time for Tom Brady to go Hey, uh, I've started reading a new book. I uh, got it about uh, six weeks ago, heard it about two months ago, and finally, finally got to it this week. Uh, written by a lady named Eamon Herman, a- Amy Herman, and the title of the book is Visual Intelligence, and like the subtitle is like how being a better observer will change your life or something uh, over the top like that. But it's a pretty interesting book. And it, the premise of the book is that this lady, who is an art historian, teaches people to observe better and be better aware of their surroundings by, by uh, learning to pay attention to great art. And so she teaches through great art the power of observation. And uh, she, what it sounds kind of flaky until you realize, uh, to kind of look into all the different people that she has interacted with. She really first hit the scene by by teaching the, uh, the policemen and, the, and detectives in the New York uh, Police Department uh, about these principles. And so she's become kind of a nationally uh, known uh, expert, and so she goes to places like police departments and uh, security firms and um, medical firms and uh, uh, even uh, some government firms like, you know, like... Uh, CIA and people like that. I mean, really some pretty credible organizations. And she teaches them the power of observation, teaches them to be aware of their surroundings by just having them learn to look at great art and observe. So one example that she uses is this picture right here. This is a picture by a guy named Johannes Vermeer, I think is his name. And by looking at this picture, you're just supposed to spend as much time as you can looking at this picture and uh, trying to figure out what is going on. I know you can't quite see it, uh, but you look at that picture and over a period of time you begin to understand that one of, you know, you've got a couple women in the picture, you've got a few different objects, and just by observing, you notice more and more. And the more time you spend, it's true, the more time you spend just looking at this picture, the more that you begin to understand what's taking place. And, and after a few minutes of looking at it, you'll notice that the, the lady in the yellow is in this beautiful, beautiful kind of a fur, kind of a coat, and she's got jewelry, she's got a pearl earring, she's got her hair made, and, uh, but the other woman is kind of faded into the background, and she's in a very plain outfit, and she doesn't have any jewelry, and even though they appear to be about the same age, you, pretty, you come to a conclusion pretty early that they're not the same social status, and then you try to figure out, well, who are they? What is their relationship? So they're not related to each other by blood, but... Uh, but there is some kind of relationship, and it looks like this lady's coming with a piece of paper in her hand, and that this lady is on the receiving end of that, and so she's bringing her a note. And, you, you know, the name of the picture gives it away. It's called Mistress and Maid. That's the title of the painting. But, uh, and you still don't know all the details about what's going on, but that's part of what this book is meant to 
instruct you in is how to look at a situation and take it all in and not take anything for granted and come to some decisions about what's happening. And uh, we're going to do the same thing this morning with our Bibles. I want to, I want to uh, show you something that I think will change the way that you read your Bible. That, that the Bible is an amazing collection of books for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is because no matter how much time you spend in it, you continue to learn new things. You continue to observe things that you've never observed before and learn things that you've just never seen. And, and the Bible always repays this kind of careful observation and careful study. It's amazing how even the most familiar passages Passages continue to repay you with careful study. And today, in our conversation called God's Church, Your Family, what I want to do is introduce you to something that you've probably never seen in your Bibles before, even though I know you've seen it before. Today, you're going to see it, I hope, for the first time again. And I hope that you'll never read your Bibles the same way after today. But even more important than not reading your Bibles the same way, I hope that what we learned this morning will help you change your behavior, that it will change our church, that we'll never be the same church having learned the things that we're going to be learning this morning. So I want you to get in Bible observation mode, all right? You're warmed up by looking at this painting. I want you to get in Bible observation mode, Because good Bible study always starts with just careful, slow observation. I want to show you a number of different uh, passages from the New Testament, and I want to see if you can find a common thread. All right? So let's take the very first one. Romans 12.10 says this. Be devoted to one another. So you're in observation mode, right? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Here's another passage. It says, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. Here's another. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. And then finally, this one. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Now, as you read these four different passages, you begin to notice. You're in Bible observation mode. You begin to notice a few things that these passages have in common. First of all, you notice they're all about love. You see the word love in every one of these verses. So they're about love. A second thing you notice is that these are commands. They all come in the form of a command. Be devoted to one another in love. Uh, have sincere love for your brothers. Uh, love each other. Right? So you see that they're all commands. The third thing that you notice is that the love that's to take place is between one another. So you see one another, one another, each other. Right? You see these terms, so you're beginning to understand. All right, so it's about love, it's a command, it's love that's supposed to take place between each other. And then the other thing you notice is that the same term is used to describe this kind of love, this relational term that shows up in each one of these verses, the term brothers. You have the term brothers. Now, if you're looking at this from a different translation, you might not have this in each of your translations. So I'll say that now. Not all translations bring out 
uh, what's actually in the, uh, the Greek text behind it, this term brothers. But in the first three, these first three passages, you have a term, uh, you have the term Philadelphia. Now we know Philadelphia, it's a city of brotherly love, but we didn't necessarily know that was a Bible word, but Philadelphia is a Bible word. It combines the word philos, which is a Greek word for love, and adelphos, which is the Greek word for brother, Philadelphos, Philadelphia, it means brotherly love. And that's the term that you have in these first three passages. You have the term Philadelphia. Now, admittedly, not every Bible translation takes, uh, brings that out. They just say love each other. But the real word that they're translating is this word for brotherly love. So you have that in these three, uh, first three passages. And then in this last one from 1 John, you just have the term brothers. Or if you have... A, some translations you have the term brothers and sisters. And that's a fine translation for that term, Adelphos. It's brothers primarily, but it, when it's, it's kind of like we used to use it in English. You know, when you, we used to, you, know, you say that and you can include both genders, right? Well, that's the same idea. And so some translations just go ahead and put both genders in there. Brothers and sisters. And that's a fine thing for them to do. So, that's kind of Bible observation. We have this command for love, and we have it couched in this context of being brothers and sisters. And that's what we want to talk about this morning, brothers and sisters, because it's a big deal. Paul uses the term for sibling affection when he describes the relationships between Jesus' followers in the local church. So what's big about that? Well, what's important about that, and we've kind of hinted towards this over the last several weeks in this study, but what's important about this is that sibling love was the highest form of emotional bonding that existed in the days that Paul wrote these words. Sibling bonds were the highest form of loving relationship in the culture of the early church. We talked about this several weeks ago when we talked about the difference between a weak culture and a strong culture. Weak cultures are uh, weak society, weak relationship society groups are ones where the individual is most important and what the individual aspires to is more important than what the group needs. And so an individual will say, hey, I'm leaving you all behind. I'm going to go do what's best for me. I got to be me. Whereas a strong culture society, a strong group culture, the, the group is most important. Your identity is not important. Uh, it, it's not so much what y- you determining your own identity. Your identity is that you belong to this group. That's who you are. That's what's important in your life, is this group, not your own individual identity. And that's the difference between a weak group and a strong group culture. And the culture that we live in, in the United States, it's a weak group. We put the emphasis on the individual. But in the, around the world, most of the world today, and throughout history, and certainly during the time that Paul wrote in the days of the early church, the culture was a strong group culture. And that, what that means is that the group was more important than the individual and your identity as part of the group was much more important than who you proved yourself to be as an individual. And in this strong group culture, the most important strong group in the culture was your blood family. Your blood family. Well, when I say blood family, when I say blood family, you know what I mean. I mean just people who are related to each other by blood. And that was a very big deal in a strong group culture. 
that you be related to each other by blood. If you were related by blood, then you had obligations to each other. If you were related by blood, you had, you had this strong group connection. You had a strong group commitment to each other. And you had these significant obligations to each other just by definition, of, just, by, just by the very fact that you were related by blood. And therefore, if you're related by blood, you have high obligations towards each other. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. In the average home, take a nuclear family, right? In that average home, who is not related by blood in that family unit? Who's not related by blood? Well, the children are related by blood to each other, right? They're related by blood. And the children are related to their parents by blood, right? So who's not related by blood? The husband and the wife. The husband and the wife are the only individuals in the home who are not related by blood, but everyone else is. Now, my family is an exception to that. We have eight people living in my house right now, me, Lisa, six kids. None of us are related by blood. When I thought about that a couple of months ago, I had never really thought about it before. Maybe to you it's obvious. like, well, yeah, but it was just a surprising thing to think eight people live together, not a single one of the people in this house share any kind of blood connection. But in a, in a normal home, it's just the husband and the wife who are not related by blood. By that measure then, who has the weakest ties in the family unit? Husband, wife. The weakest ties. Now that's not the way it is in our culture. In our culture, it's the husband and wife who have the strongest ties. That's the core of the marriage. But in those days... Uh, it, it was not the strongest connection was not between the husband and the wife. And in a patriarchal society where family identity is traced through the father, it's really the father and his kids. That's the primary family unit. The father, because he's the one who gets family identity. You get your family identity, your group identity from your dad. And you're related to your dad by blood. So what about the mom? Who's her strong group? Her brothers and sisters and her dad. And that's where her primary ties still are. Not to her husband and the kids, but to the family unit that she came from. That's where her strongest tie is. So what, what all this means is simply this, that the closest family bond was not the bond of marriage. It was the bond between siblings, brothers, and sisters. Now, that's hard for us to get our head around because it's so different from how we think of our families. In our culture, the strongest bond is between the husband and the wife, and everyone kind of revolves around that. But that's how it was in that day, in, in uh, the day of the New Testament. That's how it is in many cultures today. The most important group is blood family. That means that the most important bonds are father bonds and sibling bonds. What that means is this. The central value of a first century family was the obligation of undying love and loyalty to your brothers and sisters. Your brothers and sisters were the most important people in your life. 
Your brothers and sisters were the ones that you looked out for. They were the ones that you were loyal to. They were the ones that you stood up for. They were the ones whose needs that you met. Why? Because they were your family. They were your brothers and sisters. Your highest emotional obligation. And so what that means is this, that when we read that we are to love each other in the faith family, this new strong group that we've been made a part of when we turn to Jesus, when we realize that we've been made part of this, this new family and that we're to love each other by, by, like brothers and sisters love each other, that means that we're called to the highest level of love that there is. Now, I don't really hear that when I read the term brothers and sisters in my New Testament. As a 21st century American, I don't really hear that. But that's what these believers heard. When they heard that they'd been familified and put into a, a, a family with brothers and sisters, they understood the obligation that came with that. This high level of relational commitment. When Paul said, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, he was appealing to Jesus' followers to love each other like blood brothers and blood sisters in a strong group family. It's an awesome idea. It's a much higher level of commitment and relationship than we think of when we think of our fellow followers, our faith family, our local church, even here in Trinity. We don't necessarily think of, well, that's my brother. That's my sister. That's how the early church heard that. But here's the problem, that even though Paul gives a tremendous amount of emphasis to this idea, we as 21st century Americans, we hardly even notice it. We hardly notice. Paul uses the term brother 139 times in his letters. Think about that. 139 times, that's a lot. But if you're like me, you, you gloss over it every time. I do. I see it, but I don't see it. One scholar who studied these things in both the Bible and ancient culture says that we treat the term brother like it's just a punctuation mark. And when he said that, I, I, when I read that, I was like, yeah, that's right. I just kind of gloss over it to get to the main point. Well, what's your main point? What we should be doing, instead of just speeding up when we get to the word brothers or brothers and sisters, instead of just speeding up past it, we should be slowing down and we should be, we should be asking ourselves, what's going on here? Paul is using the term brother. I wonder what's going on in this passage that is so important that he is appealing to, my, to our sibling bonds. That's the question we ought to be asking. Instead of speeding up, slowing down and saying, why is Paul appealing to me as a brother or as a sister to act in this way? We should think of the term brother or brothers and sisters as actually one of the most loaded Instead of one of the most empty terms and just a, just a formality, we should actually think of it as one of the most loaded terms in Paul's theological arsenal. And here's one reason why. Think of every time you come across the word brothers, brothers and sisters, father, think, think of using these terms as playing the family card. When Paul uses the term brother, 
brothers and sisters, he's playing the family card. It's a rare thing for a culture to play the family card unnecessarily. Whenever a culture uses kinship language, it's almost always being used for a particular reason. There's a, there's a reason when cultures use kinship language. So when Paul uses the term sibling, there's a reason. Anthropologists have observed that most cultures don't usually play the family card unless there's a particular, a particular point that's being made. Usually it's when you want to do some special persuading. Hey, brother, can you spare a dime? Right? Uh, or this at my house. Hey, honey, sweetie, since you're my wonderful daughter, I'm sure you never do this, since you're my wonderful daughter and I am your devoted dad, would you please fill up this cup of coffee and bring it back to me? You're playing the sibling card, the family card. When you do that, you're playing the family card. And, and you know you're using that language. You're trying to bring out a special obligation that someone has to you. That's why you're saying, dear daughter. I mean, you're appealing to that unique relationship and that special obligation that you have. You want to remind them of their family obligation. You want to remind them to act on that basis. Right? That's why Peter and Paul and John play the family card too. Same reason. They're reminding us of our family obligation. They're saying, listen, brothers and sisters, this is how you treat one another. They're reminding us of our family obligation, the strongest bond that exists between people. And they're calling us to act on that relationship. So anytime you see a family term, you ask yourself, why is he playing the family card? And there seem to be four primary areas where the family card is played in the New Testament. I want to share those four with you. We don't have a lot of time to talk about each one of them, but I just want you to see these four different kinds of times when Paul especially plays the family card. These come from this book that I've mentioned in the past uh, that's been so helpful on this subject, a guy named Joseph Hellerman and uh, a book called When the Church Was a Family. So one of the times when Paul plays the family card, one of, one of the uh, times when we see the family card played is when, when we're being reminded of our emotional ties to each other. That's number one. Paul plays the family card when he remo- wants to remind us that we have unique family ties, emotional ties to each other. Let me just give you one example. One example is in Philippians 4 where Paul says this, Therefore, my brothers... Now, you don't zip past that. You slow down and say, brothers. I wonder what he's, where is he going with this? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, the new NIV would say, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord. He's getting ready. We should, if we had that whole passage in front of us, you could look at this whole passage. He's actually getting ready to do some business with them because they've got some gals who've been fighting with each other, who aren't getting along. Used to do ministry together, now they don't get along so well. He's getting ready to say, listen, that's not how we're going to do this. And he reminds them before he does 
we're family. And he says, you're my brothers and sisters. I love and long for you. And he brings out emotional ties. So one time, one occasion when you see the term brothers and sisters, one reason might be Paul is appealing to your emotional bond, your, your sense of value and commitment to the people who follow Jesus with you. There's a second time when Paul plays the family card. When it comes to living harmoniously with each other, family unity. That's what this passage in Philippians 4 goes on to, to, to develop. Paul starts by reminding them of their emotional bonds. My, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, my joy and crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord. And then he starts to say, listen, I plead with Euodia, I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. He goes on to remind them that, that as brothers and sisters, we need to live harmoniously with each other. Another place where the term brothers and sisters is, is extra heavy is in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul is telling Jesus' followers, don't sue each other. You don't take each other to court. You don't, you don't take your problems between each other and take it to a secular court to decide. You leave it in the church. You leave your business at home and you let the church help you work through these things. And that passage, 1 Corinthians 6, you can read it and you've got to read it in a translation that really is fairly literalistic, but you'll see the term brothers, 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 brothers. We live harmoniously with each other. Paul's appealing to this family unity. That's the second time he plays the sibling card. The third time, a third kind of time, would be when it comes to material possessions. You see a lot of generosity in the early church. You see a lot of sharing possessions, giving money to, to bring relief to each other, taking care of each other physically and materially. And one common feature of these occasions is that these are is the reminder that these are brothers and sisters that we're taking care of. You remember that passage we read already a few minutes ago where uh, in 1 John, where John says, listen, if any of you sees a brother in need, any of you who has material possessions, and you see a brother, a brother in need, and you just say, hey, man, sorry about that, and you don't act on his behalf, how can God's love dwell in you? That's a brother you got there. The highest level of relationship that you have, you share your material possessions with him. You see this. Uh, in large uh, proportions when you look at places like 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where Paul is appealing to these Corinthians and talking to them about giving generously to the poor brothers and sisters who live in Jerusalem. And you see the term brothers, 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 brothers. This reminder that we share materially with each other because we're family. So when in occasions when Paul is appealing to emotional ties, that's one time you'll see this term. Another, a family unity. A third is sharing material possessions. And a last one is when it comes to family loyalty. Loyalty to each other. One of the ways that we demonstrate that we're family is persevering. See, the one thing you can't ever get away from when your strong group is your blood family, how do you undo that? How do you undo blood family? You walk away from someone, but that doesn't change the fact that you're their blood family. And when that's how you define family, then, hey, you're loyal to each other. 
I'm sure those of you who watch movies about the mafia, I'm not a big mafia genre kind of a person. I'm pretty sure there's got to be a great movie that illustrates my point here. That family blood means loyalty. So some of you could catch me up on, give me a good illustration after the service. Um, Family loyalty. You see this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul is appealing to family loyalty and reminds people of their bonds to each other as brothers and sisters. So we have these four different clues that you can look for when you see the term brothers. You could say, wow, is Paul appealing to my emotional my, my, the, the level of value and commitment that I'm bringing to my relationships with my fellow followers? Is he emphasizing unity and wanting to make sure that we treat each other right and put each other first? Is he appealing to, and is he reminding me of how generous I should be in sharing my material possessions? Is he reminding me of family loyalty or maybe it's something else? But as an observer, you don't zip past brothers and sisters. You stop and you say, wow. Paul's playing the family card. John's playing the family card. Jesus is playing the family card. He plays it in a different way. That's another sermon. Why, why, is, why is the family card being played and what should I do about it? Here's what it all comes down to. When you turn to Jesus, when I turn to Jesus, we got familified. You didn't just get, you didn't just get saved and your relationship with God repaired, and your eternal destiny prom guaranteed, and your life purpose assured. It didn't just happen to you. Very Western way of thinking about it. You didn't just get saved. You got familified. You got put into a family called the local church where you have brothers and sisters that you do life with. And those are important bonds that surpass Even the bonds that you have with other people. And they become your life's most important relationships. God intends for these relationships to be the most important relationships we have. Marked by emotional connection. Marked by unity. Marked by generosity. Marked by loyalty. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He's been generous with us. He actually calls us his brothers. And and we're called on to, to act in the same way towards each other. So with that going on, and a little bit extra information, what I'd like to do is read these passages we began with this morning and and let them be filled with new meaning. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers... Love one another deeply from the heart. Now about brotherly love, we don't need to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Notice, love extends beyond the local church to other Jesus followers. You do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers... To do so more and more. And this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 
The next verse says, let's not love in, in word, but in actions and in truth. The other thing I notice about this very last passage, and then we'll conclude with this thought, it says, how can the love of God be in him? That could mean two things. That could mean, how could God's love for you, how could God's love dwell in you if you don't love other people? How could God's love be in you? The other thing it could mean is, how could you love God? How could you have love for God if you don't have love for your brothers? I'm not sure which of those is true, but I try to conduct myself on the basis of both of them. Okay, And just to be sure that this passage reminds us this is how God's love is expressed through us. It's also how our love for God is expressed by our love for each other. A reminder to us, next Sunday we're going to start getting really concrete about how to love each other. We're going to get very specific in three Sundays, talk about serving each other, preserving and persevering. And so as we talk about those three Sundays, everything we've said up to this point just reminds us of the obligation we have, and next week we're going to talk about how we flesh that out. So my desire is that this renewed awareness would transform our church, that it will take us to a new level of love for our brothers and sisters in this faith family, because this is where we really live it out, and then beyond that, to our brothers and sisters around the world, but really the people we got to work on are, are the people we do life with. And so my desire is that God would use these, these things to help make us increasingly aware. Like this ma- uh, passage says, Paul says, hey, you love each other. All right, you do love each other, but I want you to love each other more and more. That's really where we're at as a church, that I think God wants to do new things through a higher level of commitment and love for each other. So that's what I'd like for us to stop and pray for. Let me give you just a minute to process, and then I'm going to pray.